Hey everyone, it's time for the With a Bullet podcast. My name is Todd, his name is Matthew. Both of our surnames are Golden. <laughs> um, what's up, Matthew Golden? <laughs> not, not a whole lot. Um, you, you should have included there too. Um, maybe I don't want to re- reveal my middle name. Oh, okay. Fine then. So, um, this week was your call. Tell us what we're talking about this week. We're doing the Hot 100 from December 18th, 1982. Um, we already did a albums chart from 1982, so I um, wanted to go back and do a singles chart. This was kind of when uh, we first got MTV, so a lot of the stuff was kind of familiar to me for that and it's pretty solid chart all the way through so um HBO, a lot of familiar stuff don't forget about hbo video jukebox yeah 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 you're right about that also an avenue for watching videos although not like regularly uh back in 1982 what'd you get for christmas that year um god i i, I think i got like a hot wheel set <laughs> that's the only thing i really remember I, 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 I may have gotten a bike. I, I can't remember if I got my first bike that Christmas or for my birthday afterwards in 1983. But, yeah. I have no earthly idea what I got for Christmas. None. No idea at all. <laughs> Don't remember. I'm not good at remembering stuff like that. So, but um, right. anyway, let's get started. Number 40. For you to start things off is Shame on the Moon by Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. This was a big hit for Seeger that's kind of been forgotten. Um, at the time, in this was his biggest hit in terms of chart position. Um, it went to number two. Um, it was later beaten out by Shakedown, which went to number one for some reason. Um, but you never hear this one. Um, if you hear Seeger on the radio... I mean, you're going to hear Night Moves, Against the Wind, Old Time Rock and Roll, and Turn the Page, and stuff like that. Um, you're never going to hear this. And the reason why is that this is a country ballad. Um, just as simple as that. Um, classic rock will play like a country-ish type song if it's um, tempo or parts of it um, like rock in a traditional way. Um, some examples of this would be like Heard It in a Love Song or... Um, Tuesday's gone, but actual country ballads, no way in hell. Um, but this is a pretty good country song. It was written by Rodney Crowell. Um, he did the original about a year before this. Um, his version wasn't released as a single, but Seeger liked it enough to cover it, but it almost wasn't included on the album The Distance. Um, Seeger and the rest of the guys of the Silver Bullet Band really liked the song, but they weren't really sure if it fit the album. Album. Um, the rest of it was pretty rock oriented, um, typical Bob Seger stuff. Uh, but they put it on there anyway, and the record company liked it. So it became the first single for this. Um, it's a good song, nice change of pace for Seger. I'd much rather hear this on the radio than turn the page. <laughs> so I'd rather hear Shakedown. I, I prefer this to Shakedown. <laughs> I'd rather hear. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather never hear Turn the Page ever. I hate that song. I've always hated it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't understand what the appeal of that is. I mean, it's a pretty boring song. I mean, 
kind of tedious, and I it's, guess. And it's whiny about yeah, yeah, the fails of the road. It's like, shut the fuck up. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This was also Shame on the Moon's debut on the chart. But actually, this is where it started out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was on its way up to number two. It actually went to number one on the adult contemporary chart and charted on the country chart, too. I mean, it's a country song, so why not? What did the moon ever do to anybody? Why does it need to have shame? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) Um, Let's see. um, There... I mean, in the chorus, he says, blame it on the moonlight. So um, I guess it's that. So <laughs> I thought maybe he was mad at the tides or something. No, no, probably not. <laughs> but um, number 39 for you, we have Billy Joel with Allentown. Um, what speaks to the plight of the disappearing Rust Belt worker more than dinner musical quality set pieces inspired by the most corn pone ver- vision of Bob Fosse possible, which includes homoerotic steelworkers, getting a pink slip as you emerge from a community shower, dancing construction workers, Vietnam War, shame on you, slash guilt, a guy in short shorts twirling around a torch, and a pop star with an impressive but uneven career positing himself as a modern-day Woody Guthrie. I mean, what speaks to the, to the declining Rust Belt worker more so than all that? Um, uh, yeah yeah exactly all of which is featured in the video for allentown which i really liked it when it was out um because all the stuff i just made fun of uh came off as advanced production values for 19 er, 1982 era videos and and it was um and i still do like the little freeze frames that start the little set pieces but now it's just kind of a funny memory because it's pretty clear they were way overdoing it but um Pretty much. Despite all of that, I think Allentown is my favorite Billy Joel song anyway. Um, the lyrics are, if you can get past the torch-bearing dudes in short shorts and the video and stuff like that, <laughs> the lyrics are decent. And it actually sounds to me like Billy Joel, unlike, um, you know, which the, the, one, the way I remember him best, which is the late 70s, early 80s version when he was kind of carving out his own niche instead of delving into genre exercises like he did in the mid-80s and kind of celebrity fan service, which he did basically for his whole career after that. Um, and the baby boomer, you know, whininess that he had for pretty much from the mid eighties on. So the only demerit in this song is how he per- says Chrome in the middle of it. He says, uh, uh, Chrome and steel. I'm like, what the hell is, and you look it up. Actually, I, I think he might be saying, is he saying chromium? No. Possibly? No, I looked it up. He, it's chrome. He just decided to um, say chromey. Uh, okay. Maybe that's a Long Island dialect we're not aware of. Who knows? So, it could be. Could anyway, be. I do like this song. The video is funny. Go check it out. Um, but I liked it at the time. Yeah, I, I like the song, and the video reminds me of the thing from The Simpsons where they go to the gay steel mill. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. Next up for you, number 38 is Heart of the Night by Juice Newton. Uh, this is my first skip. Um, nothing against it. It just needed something to skip. Fair so. enough. Uh, 37 for you is Peter Gabriel with Shock the Monkey. Now we're talking. Unlike Billy Joel, this video holds up for me. 
this was at the dawn, as Matt mentioned, this was at the dawn of our video watching days. And I was 10 years old at the time. So I was taking quite a bit of this stuff at face value. And and this video, among others, got a big giant, you know, what the fuck from me, because I'm thinking I'm watching this and I'm like, why is this UK businessman hanging out with a guy who looks like Pinhead filtered through, uh, you know, like a serpent in the rainbow fever dream. And bear in mind, neither one of those things actually existed in pop culture at all at that point. But that's sort of what was in my mind. If you, if you retrofit it to the late eighties, that's what the, cause Peter Gabriel's dressed up in like this sort of tribalish, um, white makeup that's kind of like his doppelganger in the video and so there's that there's dwarfs there's monkeys well you know you can see the monkeys because it's in the song title and there's these beans that gabriel and his demonic friend uh keep getting pissed off at which um (laughs) find funny but um just like billy joel this is also my favorite peter gabriel song because it's uh it's really kinetic i've always thought this one sort of stands out in his catalog because it's not um you know stupidly experimental like some of his early stuff is and not kind of overproduced like his stuff after this was so kind of calibrated it right at least as far as my tastes were concerned and uh i think he cleaned up that kind of sound he had a little bit too much by the time so came out which is what really made him big for you know mass audience but shock the monkey's always been a big one for me i like it yeah, I like this one too. I, I don't know if it's my favorite. I it might go a Salisbury Hill out of his singles, but this one is really good. And I, I was scared by like his like white makeup with like the tattoo. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He looks like he looked when like, I was a little kid. Looks like Pinhead from uh, Hellraiser, except Pin. Right. Pin, yeah. Pinhead yep. didn't exist yet, but that's who he does look like. Maybe he inspired Pinhead. Could be, could be. Maybe he inspired all the Cenobites. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something Peter Gabriel would be into because he was into costumes and all that when he was in Genesis. So maybe he, uh, maybe he created the Cenobites. Maybe he created Hell itself. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, next up, uh, next up for you is. Uh, Number 36, Let's Go Dancing, Ooh La La by Cool and the Gang. This was a minor hit for Cool and the Gang, kind of a transitional single, um, halfway between Celebration or Get Down On It and stuff like Joanna or Fresh. Um, it's a party jam, but there's really no bite to it. Um, most of the songs just a chant of Ooh La La La, Let's Go Dancing, Ooh La La La, Reggae Dancing. Uh, despite the fact that it mentions reggae, it has like no reggae elements at all, except for uh, one line where J.T. Taylor kind of sings it in a Jamaican accent. And when I think about people going out dancing, I usually don't imagine them dancing to reggae. I mean, theoretically, you could dance to reggae, but does anyone actually do that? I mean, anyone outside of cool in the gang? I dance to reggae because I'm a terrible dancer and it's the only damn thing I can dance to. Yeah, I guess I guess he could do that. I mean, but I mean, I I don't really imagine reggae dancing aside from like just kind of like swaying around. Well, a yeah, that's, bit. that's like what it what it would even be. Uh, but this did have a video. Um, cool, and the gang are like marching through a block party in New York in like multicolored satin jumpsuits. 
Um, nobody is dancing in the video, and there isn't a single Rasta to be seen. Um, so nobody's um, dancing or reggae in it. So it's kind of false advertising. <laughs> but um, this, I mean, it's typical 80s cool in the gang type stuff. I mean, it's okay. So, yep. I actually thought this was my song, to be honest, but I still would. Oh, I still would. Really? It, it's your song. I. It's my mistake. So, uh, okay. But it doesn't okay. really matter because the next song I would skip anyway. So, okay. Um, well, 35 is moving pictures with What About Me? Oh, I really poured over this one. <laughs> so, but I decided against, I really weighed it out. I had the Supreme Court look into it. Um, I've decided to skip this one since I accidentally Uh, your song. Oh, okay. Well, this song isn't great anyway. No, it's shit. Because I do remember looking it up when you first uh, proposed this chart. And I was like, nope, this song sucks. I'm skipping this one. So it doesn't matter. It all worked out. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Number 34 for you. Kind of surprised to see this band on this chart in this year. A Penny for Your Thoughts by Tavares. Yeah, I'm skipping this one. It's a it's a ballad, um, kind of early '80s ballad. So, um, I think this is like the third time I've skipped Tavares. So, why do you hate sort Tavares? Of, sort of feel bad about it. Why do but... you hate Tavares? Why? What did they do to you? I don't. I don't know. There's just better songs on the charts that there. And, <laughs> and why couldn't you explain how Tavares somehow made the charts in 1982? Because I associate them with like 1976. Yeah, exactly. I I thought they like disappeared off the face of the earth after like Saturday Night Fever. I wonder if they had disco strings in that song. They didn't have disco strings on that song, from what I remember. So shame, but (laughs) but thirty three for you is Fleetwood Mac with Love in Store. Well, I think inarguably the most famous song from the Mirage album, which is what this is from is either Hold Me or Gypsy, kind of co-favorites probably on that. Um, but this song deserves a little bit more love. First of all, um, Christine McVie sings it, so that's a plus, and it's fake yeah. as far as I'm concerned. I'm a big McVie fan. Uh, second, it kind of masters the art that Buckingham Nick's era Fleetwood Mac did best. It's a mid-tempo song, but it has some drive to it. It doesn't meander. Um, it is a little bit repetitive, I will say that, but... Um, but you feel like it's going somewhere. I think most Fleetwood Mac songs kind of have that trademark to them. And the other trademark is that uh, the always understated, but great guitar work from Lindsey Buckingham. He never shows off, um, but, and you never, it probably doesn't hit you on the first listen, but when you go back and listen to a Fleetwood Mac song and you listen to his guitar, I was like, damn, that's some intricate shit that he's doing. Um, Even if it's not like in the form of a solo or, anything like that. It's all kind of servicing the music. So uh, good stuff and uh song that probably should be heard a little bit more often than it is. Like you said, oh, yeah. <laughs> with Bob yeah. Seeger, I mean, there's too many radio programmers and this is an old story. This is not new, but that just stick with like five songs by the, by certain artists. And, and it's worse now that basically DJs don't really exist. They program all right. stuff at a corporate level, but you know, there's, Many, many more songs by most of these artists that are worth hearing. And this is probably, you know, I'm not saying I'd want to hear this all the time, but um, but it's 
certainly worthy of radio play. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Um, but it did not have a video where Stevie Nicks was walking around in the desert or um, they were digging around for treasure um, or whatever through old records. Isn't that what they were doing in the homey video? Well, well, they found records, I think. They, they were like doing like Mick Fleetwood and John McVie were like doing an archaeological dig and they right. found records. Yes. That video perplexed me when I was that age, too, because it struck me as like, is this art? Like, it was like my first awakening. Like, huh, this is very artsy. And I don't. Yeah. It, yeah. But I guess I'm supposed to pretend like I get it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. But and in actual fact, they absolutely hated shooting that video and hated each other, which is pretty. Yeah. yeah. Common theme in Fleetwood Mac. Um, next yeah. up for you, number 32. Everybody wants you by uh, Billy Squire. Yep, uh, this is peak Billy Squire. Um, two years before his career was allegedly ruined by the "Rock Me Tonight" video. Yeah, which is and what? That's horseshit. I hate that theory. Yeah, I know. But um, in the video for this, um, it's a live video, and he's prancing around just as much as he did in that video. So um, this one didn't ruin his, his career, obviously. And speaking of videos, um, since this was around Christmas, MTV was probably um, playing the video for Christmas is the time to say I love you in heavy rotation, um, which, to be honest, is probably his best song. Um, it's better than this one anyway. Um, but this one's kind of halfway between hard rock and pop. Um, a lot of his songs were in that territory. The riff of it reminds me of something, but I've never really been able to put my finger on what that is exactly. But it sounds familiar, sounds like something else I've heard in the past. Um, but I've never really been able to get into this one. It's okay. I might like it more if it wasn't such a big classic rock staple. Um, but it was the biggest hit of the year on the mainstream rock chart. It spent six weeks on the top over there. So, and you still, I heard this on the radio today. So, I mean, it's still on the radio a lot. It does, it doesn't bother me. It's okay. I don't I don't mind that era of Billy Squire. I mean, um, it's not my favorite Billy Squire song, but it's it's all right. I mean, you you know what you're getting with Billy Squire. You're basically getting a riff and him singing, and it's going to repeat a lot. Pretty much, yeah. And you get some cool sound effects once in a while, which I'm trying to think. Uh, I think this song has the. Um, no, I thought it had like the little like swishes and swooshes that he had in some of his uh, songs. It does have like the electric like hand claps in it, kind of like going along with the drum beat. It does have that wow 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 that 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 stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's all right. <laughs> yeah, uh, but thirty-one for you is Jay Giles Band with "I Do." Well, last week I kind of professed my like for Jay Giles Band, but this song is an exception. I don't care for it. Okay. So I'm skipping it, which leads me to my long distance dedication. Yep. All right. So at number 58 this week, I'm going to roll with I Know There's Something Going On by Frida. Oh, you, you finally got a Yeah. In your face. <laughs> Merry but... Christmas, motherfucker. Revenge yes. is a dish best served in the winter cold and shit 
But I, I, I was prepared. I do have a lot for my backup option. Well, you bet so. Yeah, two to one. <laughs> Finally got your ass. Uh, yes. <laughs> I kind of thought you might pick this song. But anyway, um, first off, I had no Phil Collins on my no, no Phil Collins oriented songs on my side of the ledger. I believe you do, but um yeah i do yeah so i thought one was required because phil collins produced or played on approximately 889 percent of all the songs recorded from 1982 to 86 or so at least um that sounds like i'm making fun of him but i actually very very much approve of this song which collins produced and played drums on in fact this might be the best song collins produced for another artist i don't you know that could be argued um, the song also might be the best example of the gated reverb drum effect that Collins so famously used in the 80s and was picked up by other drummers. Um, it was invented by Genesis producer Hugh Padgham. Um, some would say In the Air Tonight is the best example of the big booming drum sound that Collins had, and it's probably the most famous one. I think this is a better song than In the Air Tonight, and I think yep. the actual drumming is a little bit better. Uh, serves the song better so I, I'll roll with this one they're both famous so um, <laughs> this song also brings together some really disparate elements Collins himself, uh, Frida breaking away from ABBA which was disintegrating at that point um, <laughs> an uncommon hard edged guitar for Frida uh, played by Daryl Sterner who played with Genesis and Phil Collins quite a bit in this era um, of which Frida is definitely not associated with. Frida herself with a cropped haircut uh, in the video and on the album cover looks more or less unrecognizable from her kind of long-haired ABBA days. Plus her hair was a different color, sort of. I think she dyed it red or... Uh, yeah. And it was black when she was in ABBA. But uh, the video is cool. Frida's looking over photos in an, kind of an expressionistic bedroom. It has like these triangle windows. It looks like... Uh, like something out of a German silent movie or something. Um, suspecting that something's going on with her boyfriend, a la the lyrics. Um, Frida is cool anyway. Uh, probably, or not probably, she is my favorite of the two uh, female ABBA members. Um, this song was actually released in the middle of 1982 and had a really slow ride uh, to the top uh, top 10 or top 20 in most countries. It finally got here at this point here to the United States, um, you know, ABBA wasn't exactly at the height of the cool by 1982. So it was going to be a little bit more of a hard sell for Frida here than it was uh, over in Europe. But um, but it did peak at 13 in early 1983 and uh, and somehow was the 20th biggest hit of 1983. I don't know how Billboard does those year-end charts because they're weird. I think... Yeah, yeah me neither. Because... I've I've always tried to figure out how like do they base it on peak value where they were in the chart how long they were in the chart it's hard to figure out I'm presuming this was in the chart for a while which is what got it to twentieth for eighty three but I I think it's one of the better songs of the early eighties and I dedicate it to Gated Reverb um, the percussion trademark of the nineteen eighties right um, I mean you had pretty much everything that I was going to say one thing I was going to point out is that it was written by Russ Ballard. Uh, from Argent, and he also wrote New York Groove, um, Since You've Been Gone for Rainbow, uh, Winning for Santana, and You Can Do Magic by America. So he was kind of all over the place at this time period. But this is, I mean, 
I, I think it's the best thing that Phil Collins ever did. And I mean, I, this is one of my favorite songs of the eighties. Yeah. So, and I stole it from you. So take that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Russ Ballard. <laughs> I, I really like since you've been gone, that's a good song by a pretty mediocre band, but uh, right. So as far as Russ Ballard, I, I like winning too. I, I actually remember that that song's actually filtered through my country consciousness in 1981 when it was out. But um, so, yeah, but this is good. And, and, and it fit right in with all the other songs that were out at the time on MTV and stuff like that. I mean, it, it, it was definitely of its period in a good way. So yeah, there was that as well. Another video that was on a lot, an early video I remember very, very well is at number 30, you got lucky by Tom Petty and the heartbreakers. Um, this song was my introduction to Tom Petty. I mean, I'm assuming I might have heard, like, Stop Dragging My Heart Around before this, but um, this is the first time I really knew who he was, and that was because of the video for the song. Um, it was inspired by Mad Max, which obviously I hadn't seen because I was four. <laughs> but um, Petty and the rest of the Heartbreakers are kind of in a post-apocalyptic future, and they stumble upon a tent filled with um, state-of-the-art for 1982 technology. Um, there's a wall of TVs, arcade games, recording equipment, slot machines, and so on. Um, they're fascinated by all the stuff, but they decide to reject everything at the end, except for um, Mike Campbell grabs the guitar and takes it with him. Um, it's pretty memorable, and it was fairly decent video in terms of quality for 1982, and MTV played it quite a bit. Um, which is where I saw it. Um, but I've never really thought about this before, but at the ending, when they do reject all the technology, it might be their own commentary on both the video and the song itself. I mean, videos were a new thing, and the song was very synth-heavy. So maybe by rejecting everything but the guitar, they're kind of signaling to the fans that they were just kind of checking this stuff out. Um, they weren't interested in being a synth-pop band or video stars. They were just a rock band. Um, they were just dipping their toes in. Um, but, I mean, they did become video stars, obviously, though. But, I mean, this is a this is a great song. I mean, right up there with their best. And um, it was actually the number one hit on the mainstream rock chart this week in 82. So Yeah, Tom Petty strikes me as a guy that would hate videos, but he also really embraced them in the 80s because you think of don't come around here no more is a very famous video. Um, I mean, he made videos before this that weren't, didn't really have that much production value. I mean, they were basically live performances, but um, he didn't see, I mean, but the song that came out after this, which was, um, um, oh shit. It's, um, I think it was change of heart, change of heart. Yeah. Which is my favorite Tom Petty song. I'm a dope and can't remember it. That didn't have a video at all. I don't think so. Uh, no, I didn't. No. So he, he's, you know, he was very, this was shortly after his whole record price thing that he went through with his record company. So he was very fan oriented and, and, you know, there, it was, it was actually fashionable in this period to slag videos. I mean, there was plenty of artists who were like MTV. That's horseshit. You know, I don't want Oh, I, I, I have an example of that coming up later on. Yeah. <laughs> so. But I think you uh, also to correct something on your, um, on your intro to that um you did see the road warrior um in 1982 <laughs> you went with grandma bush and the boldens and the stangs to the drive-in in burlington 
to go to the Road Warrior. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't even know there was a drive-in in Burlington. There wasn't. I made all that shit up. <laughs> the the Stangs always like existed in like myth to me. I, I like always heard about them, but I don't think I ever met them ever. You probably did. You just don't. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty old. Uh, that's what I remember. They were old, right? Older than yeah. our grandparents. So, um, yeah. So, but you saw that, and then it was a big deal um, when the feral kid came out. And I've kind of lost track of what I was making shit up about. So we'll just move on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, number 29 for you is Jeffrey Osborne with On the Wings of Love. Surprisingly to me, this is this song's peak on the Hot 100. Um, it seemed like it got a lot more play than that. Um, maybe it's because it's been, I think it was in a, like maybe it was in a commercial. It was in an Amazon commercial, I want to say. I don't know. But um, this came from Osborne's first solo album after his days in, as LTD's lead singer. You may remember LTD for such songs as Back in Love Again, Love Ballad, and Son of Sanford and Son. Hmm. I made that up. The last... I, I remember Back in Love Again. I don't, I mean, I would be interested to hear what Son of Sanford's Son would be. Yeah, I made that up. That's one of the Troy McClure um <laughs> okay okay along with christmas ape goes to summer camp alice doesn't live anymore designated <laughs> drivers the life-saving nerds andre the giant we hardly knew ye buck henderson union buster dig your own grave and save <laughs> smoke yourself thin and get confident stupid those were the choices i could have used in that slot but i hooked you in fan of sanford and son and it worked but um, yeah <laughs> anyway on the wings of love was a decent hit um but never ever forget that osborne's biggest moment of 1982 was that he sang the opening song of the greatest cultural event of 1982 which was the toy so oh god <laughs> he did sing the opening song to that so yeah props <laughs> yes <laughs> anyway next up for you number 28 is Be My Lady by Jefferson Starship. Ah, uh, this is a skip. It's a it's a ballad for that. I don't remember um, that song at all. Yeah, it's not really worth remembering, hmm. to tell you the truth. All right. So, <laughs> um, 27 for you is Adam Ant with Goody Two Shoes. Well, it, Goody Two Shoes is a good song, but it I think I've mentioned this before. It perplexes me to this day which parts of UK pop slash new wave we consumed and what we ignored um there were better groups and and, you know solo artists than adam ant uh that never made it over here i guess his telegenic image didn't hurt he shot interesting videos um what i've always wondered about this song if you know your movies and if you know your racing movies um i've always wondered whether adam ant ripped the line don't drink don't smoke what do you do from grand prix because it's in Spoken by Antonio Sabato, uh, almost verbatim to F- Francois Hardy um, in that movie. It's almost literally lifted from that. I mean, there's conversation huh. in the movie. It's when he meets her at the beginning of the movie. If you don't know Grand Prix, I, Antonio Sabato plays kind of this stereotypical young rookie Italian driver who's a hot shot and a womanizer. And it, Francois Hardy is kind of, I guess, like a high class groupie for drivers and they meet at a club and end up hooking up. So, uh, but that's what 
uh, he says to her, and you know, it has all the nods, requisite nods and winks and innuendos that you know that line uh, entails. But um, good song, but it's no strip, which I love to death. That's my favorite Adam Ant song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, next up, okay. you, number twenty-six, "Heart to Heart" by Kenny Loggins. Kenny's teaming up with Michael McDonald yet again. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't a Yacht Rock episode based around this song. Um, Michael, of course, does the background vocals here. And he also plays the Fender Rose, and he's helped out on background vocals, but not by not one, but two future members of Mr. Mister. Um, <laughs> this has a typical um, Doobie's late 70s Loggins feel to it. I assume that this one came out earlier than 82. I would have guessed like 78 or 79. It's soft rock. It's smooth. It's not bad, I guess. I seem to remember this being used in an NBA ad at some point in the mid-80s. One of the NBA, it's fantastic ads. But I I couldn't find any evidence of that, but I could have sworn I was in it. It might have been, now that you mention it. I mean, I kind of vaguely remember that. It, it was either this or one of his other songs. Yeah, I mean, most of the songs in those ads were kind of similar to this one. Yeah. Like, kind of, like, soft rock 80s type stuff. But See, that's where, um, where your and I's perspectives are a little bit different. See, I would definitely place this song right in this period, because I remember hearing it on the radio uh, quite often at this stage of the game. I mean... You know, yeah, we're still I, I very much, do, but I mean, I we're still I wasn't aware that it was a new song. So. Yeah, well, I mean, we're still very much in the yacht rock era here. I mean, a lot of people associate it with like right at the turn of the '80s, but it very much as some of the songs on this chart, uh, including probably the next couple I have coming up, um, are in that still in that realm because we were still wanting to be smooth. Yeah, I exactly. Like this song. This is one of my favorite favorite Kenny Loggins songs. Maybe, maybe it is my favorite Kenny Loggins song. Ever. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not bad. I I'd probably pick it as one of the better ones of his. It's smooth. Uh, it, it's it's not as good as "Don't Fight It," which was on the same. Yeah, album. see, don't don't fight it. I remember that being on the radio around this time as well. So, uh, right. Which is, but this was this was also his biggest non soundtrack hit of the eighties. Believe it or not. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> yes, it beat up Fox, Fox Humana or whatever that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the only the only single that only other single that wasn't in a movie. Yep. Or or actually, don't fight it wasn't in line either. But anyway, um, twenty five. Um, John Cougar with hand hold on to. Nah, I'm skipping this. I've had enough of John Cougar. Okay, okay. I've, I've, I've said enough. Enough has been said. Um, next up for you, number 24, Heart Attack by Olivia Newton-John. I'm skipping this one. It's not that great. I, see, I kind of like this song. And I, I feel like this song kind of is like one of those weird slip through the cracks, like early 80s songs. Because, uh, and, and same thing with the one I have coming up next. I mean, it's like, because I don't know that this was on mtv i don't feel like this was an mtv hit um but it was a big radio hit i don't know i don't know where i'm going with that but 
Okay. There's a lot of songs from 81 to 83 that I feel like that are decent that kind of fell through because they went out of style because they weren't video oriented, like, you know, in the years after that or synth oriented necessarily. A lot of Yacht Rock is actually in that category, to be honest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure this one did have a video. I, it, I don't remember. It probably seeing... did. It's Olivia Newton-John, so maybe it did, but. But I also, yeah. this isn't, I can't remember the last time I actually heard that song, Heart Attack. Like, even. Yeah, even yeah you're 80s, right about that. I, yeah, I can't remember. Even either. on the 80s station that I have on my satellite radio, I can't remember ever hearing it. So. Right, yeah. Nor this next song. Um, yeah, number 23 for you is Dan Fogelberg with Missing You. Contrary to the opinion of many, including number one Dan Fogelberg fan, Matt Golden. Um, not every Fogelberg song was a dirgy personal ballad. He did actually go up tempo at times, and this song is one of them. Is this a masterpiece? Not really. Is it bad? Eh, also, not really. It's fine. Um, this is probably the most yacht rocky song that Fogelberg did, apart from maybe Heart Hotels, which is right in the yacht rock uh, universe. Um, this was a bonus track on Fogelberg's greatest hits album the cover of which looks like a vinyl painting of Fogelberg doing a Krista Berg imitation. <laughs> it's got, yeah. He's dressed up. He's got the hair. Um, Fogelberg didn't necessarily look like Krista Berg, but he did on his greatest hits album cover. Cause it was an <laughs> illustration. Yeah. The, well, his greatest hits album is like a, dollar bin staple at record stores yeah like see, i mean every single one i've ever been to has had like at least one copy of this fogelberg is a great example of the artist that mtv knocked out of the box i mean and it was right. really really popular from you know what 1980 to about this period um you know this whole singer songwriter thing seemed to be you know not necessarily evolving but i mean at least not falling out of popularity but then once mtv hit a lot of artists like him were um out of luck although i right. will still defend language of love that came out the year after this and that's a good song and that's actually an up-tempo song that sounds more like like michael stanley band or something yeah i i sort of did was that on did they have a video on yeah, mtv that was, that was okay. actually okay, um, I do remember that a one. relatively decent amount like, 83 is the key year for MTV. I mean, a lot of people say 84, but 83 is because you still had, um, you had all the new wave shit that people our age and a little bit older were uh, flocking to and all the video imagery that people our generation are, um, you know, were influenced by. But you also still had a lot of baby boomer era artists who were trying to sort of decide whether they wanted to get into MTV or not and or stay relevant like Dan Fogelberg. So uh -huh. if it'd be, it'd be interesting to watch like a month of videos from like, say, June of 1983 and see where that push and pull takes place. Because by the end of 83, it was clear, you know, the MTV would think of from like 84, 85 had won out. But, um, you know, another band I have coming up, actually, my next slot is another one who is fighting that battle a little bit, too. That Right. Flavor. So. But one guy who yeah. didn't that we've already mentioned for you next yeah. at number 22 is you can't hurry love by Phil Collins. This is a Supremes cover and this may have been my first exposure to classic Motown. Um, it's definitely the first uh, one I remember hearing. 
I mean, it's kind of funny to be introduced to Motown by Phil Collins, but um, that's what happened to me, I guess. And I actually remember where I was when I first heard this, too. I was with our dad, and he was going through um, the drive through at his bank to use the ATM or to be more period and location accurate. He was using the time machine. Um, I don't know why that stuck with me, but that's that's what happened. And that bank has since been torn down. So, <laughs> but um, about about the cover, um, Phil and his producer Hugh Patchum uh, did this as an exercise to see if they could emulate the classic um, Funk Brothers Motown sound using modern technology. Um, that's basically why they did this. And I mean, Phil was also like a big Motown fan from back in the 60s. He was really into this stuff at the time. Um, but it's okay. I mean, it's a halfway decent cover. And um, Lamont Dozier, who was one of the songwriters, also really liked it. So um, he gets the Holland Dozier Holland seal of approval there. But I don't mind this one. It's all right. That's about all I will say about it. Okay. Okay. See, but um, 21 for you is the Little River Band with the other guy. Well, I already kind of blah, blah, blah about bands fighting for relevance. This is a skip. It sounds actually very similar to Missing You by Fogelberg. So, but Little River Band is okay. another one of those kind of very popular in the late 70s, early 80s bands that got kind of obsolete because of MTV. And they, right. were, and they yeah. were pretty mediocre anyway, to be honest, but pretty much yeah next up for you at number 20 is baby come to me gotta hey patty austin (laughs) and uh, oh patty austin a duet with james ingram is the official (laughs) okay okay so right um this was the song's second run on the chart um it originally only made it to number 73 um, but it caught the attention of the producers of General Hospital, and they decided to use it as a love theme for the character Luke, played by Anthony Geary. Um, it was just Luke, not Luke and Laura. Um, Jeannie Francis, who played Laura, left the show um, to join a cast of some short-lived primetime drama. So she had already been written off the show by this point. Um, my guess, best guess was that he was with Holly Sutton, at the time, who was played by Emma Sams, or he may have been with Demi Moore, because apparently he was also involved with her on the show. Uh, But anyway, this song was constantly featured in his scenes on the show and returned to the charts because of that. This was actually um, the second chart hit that Luke from General Hospital was responsible for. Um, Herb Albert's Rise uh, became a hit after it was featured in a scene where he raped Laura about three years before this. Um, But this also features a lot of people who keep popping up behind the scenes on my side of the list. Um, Quincy Jones, Michael McDonald, um, Greg Fillingaines, Paulino DaCosta, and members of Toto. It was also written by Rod Temperton, who wrote a big chunk of Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and Thriller. It's an all-star cast for 1982. And it's Typical early 80s smooth R&B ballad. It's okay for what it is, but um, this was Patty Austin's only number one hit. Or it went to number one, and it was also her only top 40 hit. 
And James Ingram, I was kind of looking through his chart history, and it's kind of weird. I mean, he had a lot of big hits, but he only had one on his own. I mean, everything else was a duet or credited to um, Quincy Jones instead of him. And he didn't have, like, his own hit, um, which was I Don't Have the Heart until, like, 1990, which is, like, way past the time period when you would have thought that James Ingram was around, but um, he was pretty big in like the early eighties. So yeah, memorably, but, so on but, but just not on his own. Yeah. Probably most memorably on this song. I mean, that's what I was yeah. to at the beginning. I mean, I used to laugh my head off when I'd hear that song. Cause he just goes off at the end of it, just starts going off with random shouts and all that. It's pretty awesome actually. Right. Well, and, I mean, also just once, which was a Quincy Jones song, and well, yeah, um, Yamo, Yamo be there, which Michael McDonald was. Yeah, on. he had all that, but th- none of those songs <laughs> did he um, express his uh, his 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 love—not love of the song, but his enthusiasm more than he did this. And it's contrasted by Patty Austin, who's so low key, you know. And you got James Ingram basically doing kind of a combination of edwin Starr and james brown and then patty austin's basically in like um roberta flack mode where she's being real quiet so it stood out right yeah exactly. general hospital pioneered the leap motive and soap operas wonder if they had the port charles freeze ray around this time <laughs> i don't know i don't know i i did i did find any mention of that and like the um, I, I basically just looked at like Luke's Wikipedia article. I couldn't find a mention of the freeze ray in it. Freeze ray, right. but I do know that he was written off the show by like the summer of '83. Yeah, so this was like right before he left. Probably come back like 90 times. Who knows? Yeah, I think he's actually still on the show now, like in the present day. So um, that should give us your long distance dedication as well. That that is correct. This is my second choice. Um, bum bum biddy 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 bum, a bum bum biddy 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 bum. <laughs> it's um, number sixty eight. We have musical youth with "Pass the Nucci. Um This was kind of a Jackson Five approach to reggae. Um, they were from Birmingham in the UK. All the members were between fifteen and eleven years old. Um, the youngest was actually three days older than you. Um, believe it or not. Yep. Um, part of musical youth. The, yes. Um, the group was initially two sets of brothers, the Grant brothers who played guitar and keyboards and the Waite brothers who played drums and bass. Um, lead singer Dennis Eaton joined shortly after they got the record deal. Um, this song was um, mostly based around the Mighty Diamonds past the Coochie but it also contained elements of you Roy's rule nation and you Brown's give me the music. Um, the, the lyrics were changed slightly because past the coochie was almost entirely about smoking weed. Um, a coochie is a pipe. Um, their management didn't think it was wise to have a bunch of miners singing about smoking weed. So they changed it to Ducci, which is a cooking pot. And they also changed the line. Um, how does it feel when you got no herb to how does it feel when you got no food? Um, but it didn't really work because Pass the Ducci ended up becoming slang for smoking weed anyway. Um, the video for this um, was directed by Don Letts, who was a longtime associate of The Clash. 
And it features the group playing in front of Parliament in London, and they're kind of getting chased around by a truancy officer um, and end up in court. And um, the Britishness of that video stood out more to me at the time than the fact that it was a bunch of kids playing reggae. I didn't really understand why the judge was wearing a wig. <laughs> but um, this was actually... The video for that was actually the very first video from a minority artist to get, get heavy rotation at MTV. Uh, they were kind of notorious for ignoring minority artists in the early days. So um, the first one to break through is Musical Youth, not Michael Jackson, Prince, or Rick James, um, Musical Youth. But um, Billy Jane made its debut on MTV but about a month after this. But um, these guys weren't around for very much longer after this. They kind of disappeared and by 1985 um they were nominated for best new artists this year they uh, lost a country culture club um but this song's kind of stuck around in like the in pop culture after this it was referenced by back and where it's at um beastie boys and beastie revolution it was sort of covered by uh, missy elliott and it's been sampled like 77 times but um i mean I i've always really liked this i mean it's a decent pop song and um I'd, I'd just like to dedicate this to the east the west the left hand side so this generation uh, rules the nation with yes version. i don't what the hell does that mean with version that's what the actual lyric is i don't know what that means yeah me neither I, maybe I that's, figure maybe out that's that some one. patois i don't i don't understand but so yeah yeah exactly the funny thing about this song is everybody assumes that a duchy is weed and it wasn't it was actually a cooking pot but everybody now calls like one of the bazillion euphemisms for weed as duchy so it became yeah yeah exactly yeah so right (laughs) but um let's see number 19 for you is abc with the look of love part one um yeah i didn't go into whatever part two is i don't really care for abc (laughs) i've stated that before but i suppose if i had to pick a best abc song maybe i'd pick this um the synth bass and it does jam a little bit i guess but um if i had to pick a video by abc though i'd definitely roll with poison arrow which came out around the same time because it's the perfect early 80s combination of acting out the lyrics which they did in a lot of early videos which is always cheesy um weird close-ups you know, at the beginning of this, it's like an opera and they're like, they, they do the little boom noises and then they'll zoom in on somebody's face. They had a lot of that in early 80s videos. Uh, just the general cheapness. Um, uh, despite and, and there's pretension that they try to rise above the cheap cheapness, but it never works. So the pretension looks even more ridiculous. Um, and then the silent movie style acting is also um, a staple of this era. Uh, uh-huh. And then there's fantasy sequences for no good reason, like um, the female protagonist in the video turns Martin Fry into a Lilliputian by blowing a line of coke on him. So, um, or you know, they don't, it's not supposed to be coke, but I think it's coke. Um, okay, it's just hard to beat that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> anyway, next up for you is number eighteen, "You and I" by Eddie Rabbit and Crystal Gale. Uh, this is a skip. It's a it's a ballad. It, um, it's M O R fuckery, is what it is. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Not not the 
best effort for either one of them. So just skipping it. Yeah. But um, 17 for you is The Clash with Rock the Casbah. Um, I'm going to shock you. I'm going to skip this one. Just Whoa, whoa. I wanted to skip something. Okay, okay. Yeah. Kind of surprised by that. Take that. So, okay. Next up for you, number 16 is Africa by Toto. Um, Todd mentioned last week that he misheard one of the lyrics in this song. I'm assuming it's the I bless the rains down in Africa line because I always used to, to think that he was singing I guess it rains down in Africa. Nope. Um, what was it, Todd? No, the line is uh, um, the line, I've always thought the line was um, there's nothing that a hundred men on Mars could ever do. What? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Which I think is a better line than the real line, which is dumb and clunky. Hundred men or more. Yeah, the hundred men or more. What the hell kind of that doesn't have any flow to it. It makes a lot more sense than Mars. The whole song doesn't make any sense. They're talking about um you know, blessing the the whole song is stupid. Pretty lyrically. Much. Yeah. I mean, I love the song, but lyrically it doesn't make it's a, like a big I don't even know what the hell it's about, to be perfectly honest. So enlighten us. Right. Yeah, exactly. But um, anyway, uh, guys from Toto's were guys from Toto were kind of all over this chart. Big session musicians. Uh, They played on at least half of the tracks that I have here. So it's fitting that they were showing up on their own. It was written by David Page and Jeff Borkrow. Page sings it. Uh, Bobby Kimball or Steve Lukather had sung all their singles up to this point. So it's a little unusual that he's getting a lead vocal. Um, it was inspired by a documentary that he saw about poverty in Africa. And he started to think about what it would be like if you were there trying to solve all these problems, like he was a missionary or something. I mean, that's basically it. And Porter, for his part, he was trying to emulate um, what he heard at the African Pavilion at the 64 World's Fair when he was a kid. Uh, just kind of like the trance-like rhythms um, that those drummers were playing, but the other guys in total weren't really thrilled with it. They thought it was dumb and it almost didn't make it on the album, but it was eventually put out as a third single for four and it was heading up the charts. It was probably helped out a little bit by MTV. Um, the video for this was in um, heavy rotation there and it seems lame now. Um, Peaches in a library, there's a sexy library in there. Um, he's kind of dressed like Indiana Jones, and he's looking for a book about Africa. And when he finds it, a spear flies into the library, knocks over a lamp, and burns the place down. Um, the sexy librarian's glasses are later shown in the ashes. So presumably she perished in the fire. Um, rest in peace, sexy librarian. <laughs> but it's lame now. I mean, it was probably state-of-the-art for 1982 video making. Um, like I said, that probably helped it on the charts. And um, this leads to the YouTube comment of the week from Otaku Roman, who said, my grandparents got this and we got Cardi B. God is truly a sadist. Grandparents? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. Yeah, I know. Exactly. That's that's part of the reason why I picked that one. I mean, I'm looking at the lyrics here and I still defend 100 Men on Mars could ever do because these lyrics are fucking stupid. I mean, and I love Pretty I much. love Africa. I, I love the song. I loved it at the time. I held on to that. I still enjoy it when it comes on. I won't change the channel. 
But I mean, this does sound like somebody going to the World's Fair and being like, oh, that's what Africa, or going to like the Milwaukee Public Museum and writing a song about like um, the African exhibit there. I mean, it's, you know, pretty much just a lot of yeah. time life encyclopedia type shit. None of which, none, it doesn't go anywhere. I don't even, I still don't know what this song is about reading the lyrics. So um, it's going to take a lot to drag me away from you. There's nothing that a hundred men on Mars could ever do. I still defend that line. I don't care. That's how I sing it still. Okay. Yeah. more, being a writer myself, that's a clunky line for a lyric where you're supposed to have flow. So, well, it's not as clunky as the um, Kilimanjaro rising above the Serengeti line. Because that is like totally clunky it is. in the song. At least that's in a verse. This is the chorus. I mean, that's a bigger deal to fuck up the chorus. That's the other part that makes it, makes it clunky is it's in the court. So it gets repeated all the time. And so I need to go, basically what I'm saying is I need to go song Dr. Toto is what it boils down to. (laughs) Okay. okay. Because they fucked up. Right. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But uh, there was a video of this that came out a couple of years ago, um, which had, um, it it was going around on Twitter, um, had Bobby Kimball, um, who like joins into the chorus of this and like his voice is totally shot now but it was just like various videos of him trying to um hit the notes on the um, chorus and just failing miserably at it um it, it's pretty funny but i also kind of felt bad for him at the same time is he still with us <laughs> he is yeah i think all the to- guys from toto are still around except for jeff porcaro who died in a freak gardening accident right yeah yeah. at number 15 for you we have um joe cocker and jennifer warns with up where we belong i think i've seen officer and a gentleman um but all i remember about it is that lou gossett jr won an oscar from it and that richard Gere carries off deborah winger at the end of it and the thing about that scene which is really famous at the end is that they usually don't show is that when he carries her off she's like she looks pretty good in like that like that he's wearing at the factory um and he knocks it off of her head and it was it, that was dumb because she looked better with the hat on but um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> with this song and the later i've had the time of my life jennifer warrens became the all-time wingman or wing woman for famous movie soundtrack songs um and frankly neither one of them are as good as her one solo hit which was right time of the night from uh 1977 which is a you know that's a good kind of yachty you know soft rock song it's all right right Um, yeah there is an extremely long story about the origin of this song about where there was no original song budgeted for the officer and a gentleman soundtrack and they had to convince the producers to add it on and blah 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 i got really bored reading it Um, (laughs) so go find it yourself and bore yourself to your heart's content the only thing i got out of it is that joe cocker was basically a dick to jennifer warren's at first when they recorded it because he wanted to do it solo and he wanted nothing to do with the duet, (laughs) but eventually he came around and, and the rest is uh, history as Paul Harvey never said. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't think I've ever seen officer and a gentleman either. It was funny because I was on a work trip last night overnight, first overnight trip I've had in a while and they had free showtime max or whatever their service is called. And I could have watched this movie 
because it was available to watch. Hmm. Instead, I watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space. No, I didn't. Next up for you at number 14 is Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick. Um, this is a collaboration between Dionne Warwick and the Bee Gees. Um, they wrote, produced, and sang the background vocals on the track. Um, they're kind of taking a break from their own career around this time period, just kind of sitting in the shadows until the disco backlash blew over. Um, but they were still pretty successful songwriters in the 80s. Um, the collaboration was Clive Davis's idea. Um, Dion was on his label, Arista, and he wanted to see if um, the Gibbs would be able to do with her what they did with um, Barbara Streisand on the Guilty album a couple of years before that. Um, that album was a big su- success. Um, if they could do it with Barbara, why not Dion? Um, so Barry went off and recorded um, an album's worth of demos for her, which included this song. And it's his demo version is basically the same song, but he's kind of doing um, his Saturday Night Fever era falsetto on it. Um, it's really jarring. Um much more high-pitched and less restrained than what Dion eventually came up with. Um, If they had put it out on their own in 1982, it probably wouldn't have been a hit if they did it like that. But um, Dion wasn't really a fan of the song at first, um, but she kind of trusted the Bee Gees' judgment on it, and it ended up becoming a pretty big hit. Um, Great song, though. Um, It did have a video, which I'd never seen before. It was... Um, just a live video, um, just Dion, no BG cameos in it. And I actually went back through um, Dion Warwick's Twitter to see if she had um, thrown some shade on the Bee Gees, because that's basically what she's doing with her Twitter account. But uh, I, I couldn't find any evidence. So apparently she's on better terms with them than she is with like Billie Eilish and Chance the Rapper. So, <laughs> well. <laughs> That's a common theme, though, with Dionne Warwick. She collaborated with a lot of artists, and a lot of the songs that she did when she collaborated, including some of her famous Bacharach David songs, she didn't like. Yeah, she did exactly. Them. Yeah, including the one with the the uh, Then Came You with the Spinners is another one that she didn't like when she recorded it. Um, I want to say, I think um, Alfie was one of those. Alfie, maybe, and then I think maybe I'll never fall in love again. Um, right at the tail end of the sixties. So um, Dion was hard to please, but she ultimately went along with it and commercially was very successful uh, with her collaborations. I really like heartbreaker. It's a great song and um, kind of showed that the Bee Gees could have, you're right. I mean, because they were who they were and they got, so they got almost too big. Um, they probably would not have been able to have a hit with this because there was a backlash, but it did go to show that they could stay relevant if there hadn't been a backlash. Um, Cause I've heard their version of this and you're right. It's jarring, but it's, it's not bad though. I mean, it's right. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I so, mean, it's, it was, just wasn't what I was used to hearing from right. this song. Let's see, but number 13 for you, we have um, Pat Benatar with shadows of the night. Well, this is my favorite Pat Benatar song by far and on the short list for one of the best videos of all time, in my opinion. Very imaginative for 1982. And it also stars Bill Paxton as a Nazi, no less. Hmm. And Judge Reinhold uh, briefly at the beginning of the video as a uh, 
as a pilot. I can't couldn't tell if he was a pilot or a mechanic. Uh, one way or the other, he's he's with Americans, so he's a good guy. But um, I'm a sucker for World War II mission stories, and um, this is one that has Pat Benatar daydreaming as she's working in a factory um, in World War II. She sees the poster of um, of uh, of a fighter. Uh, you know, like the old school animated World War II poster and daydreams that she's on the mission um, going over to blow up a Nazi castle. I mean, it rips off the Dirty Dozen. It rips off Where Eagles Dare. And I don't care because both those movies rock. And so why not steal from the best? But um, so the mission is she flies over with her crew. It's basically the Dirty Dozen. They plant a bomb in the castle. The Germans chase them. They get away. The castle blows up. Yay, America. So, um, you know, fucked up gun. I mean, I'd rather watch this video over that any day. And yes, the part where Pat Benatar is calling back to the base, singing the song after the mission is to die for as she looks really hot in her aviator uh, get up. So <laughs> taking the video out of it, this is actually a really great early 80s pop rock song. Um, apart from that anyway the lyrics are really good you know good kind of falling in love type song Um, I do like the line midnight angel won't you say you will you know that's kind of a cool line and um, one memory I have of this song is Cassie my daughter really loved this song when she was a little kid Um, so she has good taste and it is a good song and um, easily my favorite Pat Benatar song like by a wide margin Hmm. see I'd have Probably go. I mean, we just had a song called Heartbreaker. I'd probably go with Heartbreaker for her, actually. Well, guess what? You're wrong, and I'm right. So, oh, okay, okay. What about what about um, the the song from The Legend of Billie Jean? Um, <laughs> Invincible. Invincible. That song's all right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I actually like We Belong a lot, which some that, people that, like that's fun. a good one too. Yeah. So I don't mind sex as a weapon either. That's a decent song. Right. Yeah, it is. Seriously. I actually like that song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can hear your dismissive tone. Why don't you stop it? Anyway, okay. number 12 for you is Down Under by Men at Work. Um, this is both a tribute to Men at Work's native Australia and a send up of patriotic songs. Um, in the song, Colin Hayes traveling around the world. Um, he's on the hippie trail in Asia. He's in Brussels. He's in an opium den in Bombay. And he keeps running into other Australians. Um, there's a lot of Aussie slang in it. Um, Chunder means vomiting, by the way. Um, this is probably the only hit song that mentions vomiting in the chorus. Um, there's also references to Vegemite, which is a stereotypical Aussie food stable, which is actually pretty good, actually. Um, there was a jar of it at like the international food section at the grocery store I go to. And I decided to try it out a couple of years ago. Um, it tastes like anchovies. Um, it's pretty good on toast. It's way better condiment than anything that's made out of leftover brewers. should be, but um, enough about Vegemite. Um, there is also a snippet of a famous Aussie song, which I'll get to in a little bit. Anyway, um, most of these references and slang terms are broad stereotypes. It's tongue-in-cheek, winking references to the stuff. They're mostly making fun of it. But on the other hand, in the chorus, when Hay sings, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover. Um, the thunder, according to Hay, 
um, was the increasing influence of America on Australia and how it was wiping out true Australian culture. So they're making fun of it, but they also kind of want to preserve it at the same time. Um, this was the second version of the song that the group put out. The original was a B-side that they put out a couple of years before this. And it sounds quite a bit different. It's slower. It's kind of reggae-ish, post-punk. Um, that would be the best way to describe it. Um, it probably wouldn't have been a hit if they kept it like that. But the band liked it enough to uh, redo it once they um, did their first album. They did leave off the A-side of the album, which was called Key Punch Operator. That wasn't on um, business as usual. Um, but um, there was one thing different on the second version, which I kind of alluded to earlier. Um, there's a snippet of the folk song Kookaburra in the flute solo, and that ended up getting the band into trouble about 25 years after this was released. Um, the publishing company that owned the rights to Kookaburra I've decided to sue men at work for copyright infringement um, after the link between those two songs was pointed out in a um, Australian music quiz show. Um, the judges ruled against the band. Um, they had to give back 5% of the royalties of the song dating back to 2002. And the flute player, Greg Ham felt so guilty about copying that little bit of the song in his riff that he kind of went into a downward spiral after that. Um, he ended up dying in 2012 and a lot of people involved with men at work kind of blamed that lawsuit for his death. But um, this was a, I mean, obviously a pretty big hit. This was their second straight number one in the States. And it was also big in Australia culture because it was the theme song for Australia too. When they, um, won the 1983 America's Cup. <laughs> which, Cup. Yeah, which was the first time that a non-American uh, team won that. And because of that, um, like yacht racing became big in the 80s, or at least got attention in the 80s oh, for a couple big. years. Yeah, no, it did. Yeah, no question about it. All the way well into the 90s, really. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I think... Well, they had like the rematch in 87 and then they had like another rematch like a year later and like we used like a legal yacht and we had I, to like bend the rules so we would actually win it. I couldn't I couldn't give a fuck. I do remember when I remember when before I went to school back then by then I was in high school in 87 when they had the rematch. I do remember it literally led off like the national like on the Today show where they had the little news snippet that like john palmer did or whoever it yeah. literally led uh, let it off that america took the america's cup back from australia and yeah. even even yeah. that, like wow who cares you know it's a bunch of rich people you know building yachts that's basically what it is yeah i i, I remember actually watching a little bit of that i think our dad was watching it yeah i don't know I mean, it's like totally unwatchable too i never never got it I will only say about Down Under, first of all, it had a funny video. And secondly, head full of zombie means you're stoned. Yep. Yep. Exactly. In case you were wondering. Exactly. But um, number 11 for you is Super Tramp featuring Roger Hodgson. 
with it's raining again. Yeah, Roger Hodgson was kind of getting a little full of himself at this point. Um, I have zero recollection of the video from this. I'm sure they showed it, and I'm, I just don't remember it. But um, didn't even I didn't realize it had one, uh, which shows you how much I remembered it if I did see it. But so it was new to me. And so I watched it, and it was directed by the same dude who directed noted nerd classic Highlander, which I still <laughs> don't think I've ever actually seen. But um, the short version of this video is that the guy, there's a guy who's down in his luck in Hollywood. There's various cameo appearances by the members of Super Tramp in various guises. Um, he ends up in Hollywood, and he's down his lu- on his luck. He gets his ass kicked in an alley. I think it's the same alley from the famous fight from They Live. Um, could be yeah i'm sure i think it is uh so an old lady hands him a magic umbrella and it rains and a cult of people come out of the rain and induct him into the umbrella cult and then it suddenly turns into like some sort of proto la la land musical thing so (laughs) maybe i do remember seeing the video now that i think about it i kind of remember like this is dumb but I kind of love hate this song. It's a good pop song, much like give a little bit is by super tramp, but it also has annoying bits in it. Like dreamer does also by super tramp. So I guess it's like the, the genetic molding of those two songs. This was the last hit for super tramp and their original lineup before Roger Hodgson, who got full of himself left. And Hmm. that was not a good career move for Roger Hodgson or super tramp. Super tramp came back in the mid eighties without him. Um, and they did have another hit, but um, they never, re- they were big in this period and they never, th- this was pretty much it for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't even remember what their like hit when they made the comeback would have been. I, I, know the, I, I remember the album was called Brother Where You Bound. It was, it would have been like 86. Um, okay. And I can't remember the name of the song either, but, um, but it was like a big deal that Super Tramp had an, another album out, but it wasn't Super Tramp as, you know, people remembered them. So, right. Looking back, Super Tramp was okay. They weren't, you know, some band that was, you know, they, they had their time. It was, it was, it was time to go. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Get the fuck out. <laughs> anyway, next up for you is number ten, Muscles by Diana Ross. Uh, this one's pretty underwhelming. It's not that great of a song, and um, Diana's not really singing it as much as she's just like whispering in a weird warbly high-pitched voice um it's not her typical vocal style um but it made sense once i figured out who wrote this um michael jackson wrote this um it's kind of similar to his style a little bit and my guess best guess is that she was just like imitating whatever like he gave her on the demo tape or whatever um because it does sound a lot more like him than her um but it was was probably specifically written for her because it was about a guy wanting a guy with big muscles but on the other hand it was also named after his pet boa constrictor so maybe michael was literally writing an ode to his snake um who knows (laughs) but i mean it's it's not that great petty austin who we had earlier sings background vocals on this by the way and in the video for it, um, which I'd never seen before, um, Diana's in bed and she's surrounded by bodybuilders, kind of pretty literal on the muscles thing. And then she like flies around like Superman in like the second half of the video for absolutely no reason. Um, 
I don't remember seeing it at all, but it's um, not that great anyway. It was nominated for a Grammy, though. Um, you probably don't remember seeing it because, as you mentioned earlier, MTV didn't show videos by black artists at that point. So that's one reason why you didn't see it. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right about that. Yeah. I've always thought this song was basically a ripoff of, hey, let's jump on the let's get physical bandwagon, or at least the video was. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right about that. This yeah, was during yeah. the during the fitness craze, and I don't know when Jane Fonda's videos came out, but it would have been sort of around that period. So that's what I always thought this was, uh, at least the commercial part of it. Now the lyrics may be about a snake or who knows, but, um, but it, it was a coincidence that they could be like somebody in a in you know in Epic Records or wherever Diana Ross's label was was like. Let's get physical was huge. People are into fitness. Let's put muscles out as a single. That's what I've always thought. Probably. Yeah, you're yeah, you're probably right about that. You know why? So. Because I was born to be a AOR man. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but number 9 for you is The Stray Cats with Rock This Town. Nah, The Stray Cats can go to hell. I've spoken about my, and it's more let, uh, let me exempt the other members of the stray cats and just focus on brian setzer which i've done before um you know no one could have known in, in 1982 what setzer would become later which we know now which is that he would just jump into whatever genre happened to seem to be trendy at a various stage of the game he jumped into swing in the 90s he was doing faux hawaiian tiki music I looked up. I've never heard any of it, but I don't want to fucking hear any of it. Um, so Setzer has just kind of spent his whole career moving from one genre to the other. And it's like, you know, get out of my face. So, but this does bring us to our Wikipedia fun fact of the week, sponsored by Burn Down the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Quote, okay. This, uh, this song was listed by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll unquote why okay <laughs> why in the hell would this be one of the songs that shaped rock and roll it didn't shape anything um it just <laughs> copied a form that had already been done before it's just retro much. retro yeah. music is what it is and it's not like the stray cats even brought it back i mean um you know the 70s were awash in seven or in 50s nostalgia which is what this song is paying tribute to um, including Rockabilly. I mean, The Clash did Rockabilly songs. They did, uh, um, what was it on London Calling? Was it a... Uh, um, brand Black new Cadillac. Cadillac. Brand new Cadillac, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So it's not like the Stray Cats even like found a variant of 50s music and made it their own. They just were aping people who had already done this shit. So 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. I'd rather listen to Muscles over rock this town to be perfectly I, I don't know about that i i, I, think I don't, I I don't rock I, this town. i don't know about that either but it sounded good but uh i don't i just setzer i can't get past setzer with the stray cats even if their songs are good like sexy and 17 isn't that bad of a song and frankly this isn't that bad of a song but i just can't get the past the idea that he's cashing in on some sort of thing that he happened to hit the you know at the right time of popularity i just it, it bugs me. He bugs me. Yeah, yeah, he bugs me too. <laughs> so, so, but um, anyway, next up for you, a song that does not bug me at all is uh, number eight, Sexual Healing by Marvin Gaye. 
this was written while Marvin was living in Austin, Belgium, of all places. Um, he was going through drug issues, issues with Motown, issues with the IRS, and so on. So one of his Belgian friends um, told him that he should take a break and offered him a room at his place. So he went over there. And while he was there, a reporter from Rolling Stone stopped by. And he came into Marvin's room at this place. And I've just noticed, like, S&M porno makes strewn all over the place. Um, apparently, Marvin had just made a trip to the red light district in Amsterdam and stocked up on him. And the reporter just blurted out, man, you need some sexual healing, which, of course, gave Marvin the idea for the song. Um, that reporter, a guy named David Ritz, later sued Gay's estate for a songwriting credit. Oh, what an asshole. Yeah, and he did win, so his name is on there. Um, but this is almost an update of Let's Get It On for the 80s. It's just as horny as that song, but it's a little bit more relaxed, a little bit smoother. A lot of that has to do with the backing track, which is pretty minimalist. It's just a drum machine in some synths, almost straight-up synth pop. Um, it was perfect direction for him to go in 1982, and because of that, um, this was his first top 40 hit since um, 1977, and it's really great song. I mean, Marvin had a career full of great songs, but unfortunately, he didn't have a chance to keep going in this direction. Um, it won two Grammys, um, one for um, Best R&B Male Vocal and the Instrumental Version, uh, one for Best R&B Instrumental. Uh, it was also the number two single of 1982 on the Paz and Jop Critics Bowl. Um, it finished behind um, Grandmaster Flash's The Message, but I like this one more than The Message. And the video for this, um, it's mostly Marvin singing in a club, but there's also a movie within the video. And the movie is called Midnight Love, which was the name of the album. And it's Marvin getting checked out by a sexy female doctor, and it's basically a softcore porn <laughs> scene or a softcore porn set up in the video but um, great song um, I mean obviously wish Marvin could have put out some more stuff like this but that didn't happen obviously right so. unfortunately you know starting with let's get it the let's get it on album which came out in 73 um, he never really declined I mean he had a commercial decline but he never artistically declined all those albums he put out let's get it on i want you came out in 76 here my dear which is one of the best albums i've ever heard in my life came out in 78 in our lifetime which a lot of people don't know about came out in 81 and then midnight love in 82 those are all really good albums and they're all very unique though because marvin kind of by then carved out his this sort of weird soul slash jazzy vibe that he had going and slash funk vibe that he had going on all these albums and he'd update it just enough to make it sound relevant for each of those years. But, um, you know, he was, he was probably, you know, by this point, when you look at his contemporaries, um, and I I count Stevie wonder, um, and Smokey Robinson as his, you know, Motown contemporaries who were still having hits, both of them at this point, Marvin was still was artistically ahead of both of them at this point. And it is a shame that, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you know, he was tragically murdered by his by his father. But um, then he had his famous all star game appearance in 83. I think it was. Um, yeah. 
And uh, he was, uh, you know, I didn't really get Marvin. I didn't really know necessarily the history of Marvin Gaye at that time anyway, but um, I, I have a lot of admiration for Marvin Gaye. I always argue in my mind uh, who, among those three, and then you can add Michael Jackson to it. Who's the greatest Motown male vocalist of all time. And I don't know that there's a wrong answer, um, but I think my favorite is probably Marvin Gaye among those four, just because he was so interesting. And, oh, yeah. And yeah. so kind yeah. of tortured, too. I mean, he had a lot of, you know, um, self-inflicted problems and, you know, people who he loved he had some tragedies like Tammy Terrell and all that. So um, he's an interesting person as well. So um, and just a genius when it came to his artistic vision. Actually, uh, next week's countdown that we do will reference Marvin Gaye in a totally different way. Um that uh you know was a different part of his career but so yeah okay really hmm. good stuff okay um let's see well number seven for you is don henley one of your favorite guys with dirty laundry yeah i've made my fe- feelings on don henley pretty clear over these podcasts but even i'd have to admit this is a pretty good song um even though i totally mistrust his motivation and and writing it and recording it. I mean, he said Dirty Laundry, which is a criticism of television uh, news, was a reaction to the coverage of the deaths of John Belushi and Natalie Wood, um, which is probably true. But, you know, knowing Don Henley, I suspect like some TV reporter probably asked him about whether the Eagles worship the devil on Hotel California or something. And he had a snit and wrote this song (laughs) instead. That's just my theory. There's absolutely no truth to that. But um he does do a pretty good job of throwing shade at, at the vapid TV news industry. Um, the stuff he points out has, of course, gotten only like 1,000 times worse than it was when he recorded oh, yeah. this. I mean, at that point, he's really basically just talking about local news because, um, you know, little did he know that an entire cable news cottage industry was in its nascent form when he recorded this. And and in a perverse way, they all like admire this song. Like, I there's I've heard anchor people from networks and say like, Oh, dirty laundry really hit the mark. He's like, yeah, he hit the mark. Cause you guys um, sometimes surrender your principles for ratings and stuff. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like you're the target of this, not like, it's not a tribute to you. So right. Yeah. To show how stupid some of the people in that industry are. But um, the one downside of this song, it inspired quite a few hackneyed, tributes quote-unquote from the mid-80s well into the youtube era from and a lot of them from news people they're just terrible there's one i watched that's from the mid-80s done by like people in a newsroom and it's just brutal so (laughs) but but as henley songs go um at least at least he was focused he focused his targeting on a worthy target and it's and the song itself musically is is fine so yeah yeah I'll I'll spare Don Henley my wrath this week. So okay, okay. Next up for you, number six is "Stepping Out" by Joe Jackson. This is one of my favorite songs of the '80s. Uh, has an absolutely sick bass line, which pretty much makes this song. It's fast driving, kind of all over the place. It sounds complicated. Um, Jackson's longtime bass player Graham maybe gets the credit for most people for coming up with it. Um, but apparently he didn't play on it. Um, Jackson claims that he played all the instruments on this himself. Um, whoever did it, it's amazing. I 
counted eight bass covers of this on YouTube. So apparently it's highly regarded by bass players as well. Um, on top of that, you have like the tinkling piano and the glockenspiel, which adds a little bit of class to it. Uh, when you put it together with a bass line, it's the audio equivalent of someone rushing to get out the door, dressed in the nine, speeding through the streets of Manhattan to get to a five-star restaurant or something like that, which is pretty much what you also get in the video for this, which was on MTV all the time back then. Um, Jackson was one of the first people to benefit from being on MTV, and he was uh, one of the first people to completely reject them. Um, this is what Jackson had to say about that. I made videos with Steve Barron for Real Man and Stepping Out. By the time we got to Breaking Us at Two, I said to the label, I don't think this song should have a video. I was told we had to make a video whether I liked it or not. Breaking Us in Two was a crappy video. I was embarrassed. So I decided in my great wisdom that not only would I no longer make videos, but I would write an anti-video editorial for Billboard. I mean, I'm not such a miserable bastard that I won't admit that some of the videos are great fun, but I believe that MTV was having a negative effect on music. I'm well aware that refusing to make videos accomplished nothing whatsoever, except for how to put this, um, make my next record less successful. It damaged my career and it never fully recovered. So, I mean, I, I didn't really check to see if he had made videos after this, but it, it was, I mean, he was all over MTV and then he just kind of disappeared and you were kind of wondering what happened to the guy. But I, I always like this one. I, I didn't mind the video for breaking us. I do. I don't know what his problem was with that. But that's shown a lot. It, it did. It did. But I actually have this album, and it's kind of weird aside from the singles. It, it's basically a lounge music album. I mean, it doesn't sound like any of the three singles. So, but it, it it's still decent. I mean, actually, the first three Joe Jackson albums are all pretty good. So. But always really like this one. So yeah, yep. But number five for you is Lionel Richie with Truly. Lionel looks like the forty-year-old virgin on the album cover of the single. He's in a green sweater, collared shirt against a yellow-orange background, and he still had a little bit of a fro at this point, like not a big one, kind of an early '80s style fro. And I mean, it it looks like the forty-year-old virgin uh, movie poster, but. Um, Apparently, this song and the Commodore's ballad Sail On and Still were done in D-flat major, which, um, you know, I knew that without having to look it up because <laughs> I'm a musical genius. But I don't know why we needed so many damn syrupy Lionel Richie ballads um, during this era. I mean, you start off in the late 70s with the Commodore's um, up through the mid 80s uh, with Lionel Richie. And I mean, a lot of them sound very similar. And they all were big hits. And I'm not sure why we needed all of them. I'm, you know, and some of them I don't count. Like Easy, I don't count as like a syrupy ballad. It has ballad tendencies, but it gets up tempo in the chorus. Um, and it has a cool guitar solo. Same thing with Sweet Love. It picks up like in the chorus. But then there's um, Just to Be Close to You. There's Sail On, Still. And then in his solo career, you got Endless Love, Truly, My Love, Hello. I mean, on some level, these are all the same damn song. He just 
Lionel Richie just happened to tap into a commercial vein and maximized it. I mean, what's the what do you right. think of the best is out of those songs? They're all basically the same song. I, I'd probably go with Sail On just because of the like breakdown at the end of it with the bongos is kind of cool. I'd probably go with Hello because he um, made a or the blind girl made a a cast of his head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I just I don't know what it was. If what that was in the popular era at the time to make like eight different Lionel Richie songs that sounded almost exactly the same, all be individual hits. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, me either. So, <laughs> but it worked for him. He became one of the biggest stars of the '80s. This was one of his, um, and all of the songs except for "All Night Long," which is another one that had ballad tendencies that speeded up in the chorus. Um, I guess you could even count. I to say you say me count because it gets up tempo in one part. I, yeah, I'd, I'd count that. I mean, it is a little bit different. It doesn't sound ones. like truly though. I mean, that sounds different. Yeah, I, I, I'm exempting that one because I actually halfway don't mind that song. But right. Yeah, I, I guess I'll roll with hello <laughs> because I want that um, that um, that thing of his head that's become famous. So, <laughs> OK, OK. Anyway, next up for you, number four is The Girl is Mine by Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. This one is not as bad as everyone makes it out to be. Is it a great song? No. Is it one of the better songs on Thriller? God, no. But after listening to it again this week. Um, to me, its biggest crime is that it sounds like a typical R&B ballad from 1982. Uh, there's other songs on this chart that are sound similar to this. On the Wings of Love and the Tavares track I skipped were basically in the same wheelhouse. I mean, it sounds like, God, I for, forget the name of the Al Jarreau song, but the, it sounds a lot like Al Jarreau's one big hit. <laughs> but anyway, Michael wasn't breaking any group new ground here by any means and that was probably the reason why it was chosen as the first single for thriller because it was safe because it sounded like everything else in 1982 and it also had a beetle on it so i mean how could he go wrong with that and it did well on the charts which is to be expected but it got slammed by critics um robert Criscow said that it was his worst idea since ben um but I don't mind Bend either. But this was the first of the two duets between Michael and Paul to be released, but it was actually um, the second one to be recorded. Um, Say 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 was recorded during the sessions for uh, Paul's Tug of War album, but it didn't get released until 1983 on his Pipes of of Peace album. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Yes. But... Also, like a lot of songs on my side of the chart, Michael and Paul are essentially backed up by Toto on this. Um, Everybody but the bass player is on the song. So it is essentially a Toto, Beatles, um, Jackson 5 collaboration. But, um, I mean, is it going to be like the first song that I pick if I pull out Thriller? No. Is it bad? No. So, all right. Well, first of all, let's 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 (laughs) let's attack one part of this. The Al Jarreau song you're thinking of is "Morning," I think. Um, But let's let's... we're in this love together, is what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, "Morning" also sounds like this song, but (laughs) okay. um, 
So let's do the infamous part. I have the lyrics in front of me. Maybe I'll just do it. Um, because this is what makes this song cringeworthy. It's the rap at the end. It's not rap, but okay. the yeah, spoken that is word pretty part. Bad. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like the only cringeworthy part for me. Michael, we're not going to fight about this, okay? Paul, I think I told you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I've heard it all before, <laughs> Michael. She told me that I'm a forever lover. You know, don't you remember? Well, after loving me, she said she couldn't love another. Is that what she said? Yes, she said it. You keep dreaming. I don't believe it. Or wait, no, he's saying the I don't believe it part. Yeah, 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 Paul's saying Yeah, good impression on my part. That's why people make fun of it, because it is. I mean, when that part comes on, I mean, even I laugh. I mean, it's silly. Yeah, Which is fine. it it's is. In, it is pretty I mean, bad. to your point, though, it's intended to be silly. So, you know, whatever. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's see, but... Number three for you, um, Laura Branigan with Gloria. Well, apart from being the roller skating song par excellence of this era, uh, what do you think is the greatest contribution this song has made to pop culture? And when I say that, I include the original Italian version by Umberto Tazzi, which was a huge hit in Italy in 1979, that was rewritten for English language audiences and eventually recorded by Branigan as her first big hit. So your choices are A, Totsi's version was used in the sea rescue scene from The Wolf of Wall Street. B, Branigan's version became the unlikely theme song of the 2019 Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues. Or C, it was lip-synced by Branigan herself and the quote-unquote Cadillac Foxes in the closing credits to a 1983 Chips episode called Fox Trap. (laughs) You don't even have to answer because the answer is clearly C. Because so the Cadillac Foxes are basically playing this sort of outdoor mall. I think it's the same one that the toy store was in and Pee Wee or the bike store was in and Pee Wee's Playhouse. And it features all the, the hallmarks of late period Chips um, or really any period chips, particularly very corny close-up reaction shots of Eric Estrada, and and as a bonus, fake John Officer Bobby um, after uh, <clears throat> uh, Larry Wilcox left the show because Eric Estrada was getting all the attention. Um, there's actually a YouTube, <laughs> there's a fucking YouTube tribute to Officer Bobby, by the way, which I found when I was uh, oh god YouTube wormhole. Um, what a world we live in. I mean, anyway, Brannigan acts in this episode, cooing all over Estrada, which is just gross. But I mean, there's so much more to it. There's, there's bad acting, bad uh, dialogue, which chips was very famous for. Just go check it out on YouTube. It's worth your while. It is definitely shit tastic. I really liked chips when I was a kid, but I can't imagine why anybody over the age of 12 would actually like that show. It is the whole series was written. It seemed like it was written by John C. Riley's character from Boogie Nights. It's to that level of <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I mean, and they were lazy too. There is one episode. I put it on my own Facebook the other day where there is, a, I, I watched this and this was amazing. Well, and that's, <laughs> that's the short version. I've actually seen that episode where they do a literally a 10 minute segment of, nothing but faded uh, grade Z stars roller discoing. It was from an earlier period of chips, obviously, but they would do stuff like that. And it's no wonder my dad wanted to kick my ass when I wanted to watch chips over 60 minutes when it was on Sundays. I mean, it was, 
I deserved it. I mean, frankly, because it's terrible. Chips. I mean, I'll watch it now for humor value, but it's on any kind of honest level. It's just a horrific show. But it did have the Cadillac Foxes and Gloria towards right at the end of its run. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, the clip that you posted, I mean, it was amazing because they did hit like practically every C-list star <laughs> from like the late 70s, early 80s at it. And it just went on forever. How did Nancy Culp show in show up? And I don't know. Like, that let's was just weird. Let's just randomly pull out the the you know the one of the lesser famous characters from the Beverly Hillbillies, you know, and yeah. So this is this this clip we're talking about was a clip of, like I said, faded, uh, you know, kind of grade Z seventy stars roller discoing. At a, in the Chips episode, it was like a universe. It was like a celebrity universe within a universe. Like the Chips characters were themselves, uh, but it was a benefit for the California Highway Patrol. And it was all these. And some of the people were just like, looked so disinterested. That's the other funny thing about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like they, they, they call out at one point. And I, I don't know if Grizzly Adams was still on the air when that episode would have aired. But, <laughs> but Dan Haggerty is in it. They don't even show him skating. They just show him like lacing up his skates and he looked pissed off. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny on a couple different levels because a it's like, hey, Dan Haggerty's here, which I guess he had to be there in the late 70s. He was a pretty big celebrity at that point. But um, but now, you know, you know, you know where his celebrity went pretty much nowhere after this period. So it that right. Also funny. There's a lot of that. Like the dude from Soap is in it um yeah um well they had um the kids from different strokes but not um gary coleman right i'm just staying up Plato and todd bridges yeah at the beginning um, different strokes too surely but not laverne <laughs> yeah but i approve of that though cindy williams was <laughs> i had a crush on her at that point yeah but yeah and then a lot of people that you forgot all about of course ruth buzzy was in it because that's what she did back in the days <laughs> Joanne Worley was in Joanne it. Joanne Worley was in it. Yeah, I believe so. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you were there in 1979, 80, when that episode probably aired, even then you would have been. It was basically like a love boat on skates, is what it was. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. So, and I'd also like to point out that, like, probably like in 82 was the infamous Chips Punk episode. With pain singing, I dig pain. Yeah, which which is which rules. You know, by the way, Chips wasn't the only show <laughs> though to have um, bad punk rock bands in it. There was like Cagney and Lacey did or something like that, and uh, Quincy did. Quincy, that I know that I've seen the Quincy one. I mean, Quincy yeah. just a funny ass show anyway because Quincy just gets pissed all the time. That's all he does. That's his whole thing. He's the pissed off yeah. uh, medical examiner. That and, and all the dudes faint in the opening credits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're off on a tangent. Number two for you is Mickey by Tony Basil. Uh, Tony Basil was a jack of all trades. She'd been around showbiz for almost 20 years before this came out. Um, she was primarily a choreographer and dancer. Um, she was on Shindig, the Tammy show. Um, she did choreography for like Bette Miller and David Bowie. Um, she did the video for once in a lifetime, like the same as it ever was thing that David Byrne did. That was her 
but she also dabbled in acting. Um, she was in the in- infamous um, acid trip in a cemetery scene from Easy Rider. And obviously she did some singing. Um, she put out her first single back in 1966 and was a musical guest on a very early episode of SNL. Um, but music was never really her focus until this. Um, this song was written by Chin and Chapman, who we've talked about on the show before. Uh, they wrote songs for Sweet Blondie, Susie Quattro, and a ton of bubblegum glam groups back in the 70s. And um, this song was originally performed by one of those bubblegum glam groups, um, Racy, who we also had in one of our UK episodes. Um, their version was called Kitty. Um, it wasn't released as a single. And to be honest, their version really wasn't all that special. Um, about a year after their version came out, um, Tony Basil got her hands on it and changed it quite a bit. Obviously, she flipped it from being from it being um, about a girl to being about a guy. Um, it was rumored that she chose Mickey as a tribute to Mickey Dolenz, but that wasn't true. Uh, she also added the stomping intro and the "Oh, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind" chant, uh, which is pretty much the entire hook of the song. I mean, it was inspired by some of the chants that she did when she was a cheerleader in high school. Um, but the flipping of the gender caused confusion with some people. And I'm just going to read my favorite paragraph. Y'all, you're ripping off my Wikipedia shit. to explain That's that. Okay. I'll give you. I know it is. Uh, okay, okay, but I, but this so is really glad. good. I, you have here. my silver purple. Okay, rock critic Robert Griscow um, comment on the perceived obscene content of the lyric. So come on, give it to me any way you can, any way you want to. I'll take it like a man. Uh, Griscow wrote in a review at the time that Basil was the only woman to offer to take it up the ass on the top 40 radio. However, Basil adamantly denies this. No, that's ridiculous. People read shit into everything. It's not about anything dirty. You change the name from a boy to a girl, i.e. Mickey to Kitty, and they read anything they want to into it. When it's a guy singing about a girl, it's a sweet line, when a, but when a girl sings it, it must be butt-fucking. This is how the wrong foot gets cut off when the doc wheels you into the ER. Then it's Mickey Dolan's <laughs> and butt I mean, so. on one hand, she's right, because <laughs> it's not about any of those things. Um, I'm not really sure how Robert Criscow interpreted butt fucking into that in the first place uh, on the other hand it may not have anything yeah. to do with anal sex but i mean i can understand where somebody would infer a sexual innuendo in that though because you wouldn't know that they're the, the yeah genders, yeah pretty much um, yeah have been switched from the original lyrics so uh, i don't th- i think the supreme court wouldn't accept right. the case is what i'm saying yeah yeah exactly um but it took a while for this one to become a hit in the u.s it it was initially just released in the uk in 81 Um, she had no intention of releasing it as a single here but mtv latched onto it and because of that um it had a pretty memorable video which basil directed herself she's kind of jumping around all over the place while the cheerleading squad does their routine in the background um, the cheerleaders in the video were actually high school cheerleaders, and Basil was actually wearing her own uniform for her cheerleading days in the video. It's energetic, it's eye- energetic, it's eye-catching. It was on MTV all the time. 
Um, eventually it was put out as, as a single in late 82, like literally a year after it first appeared on MTV. Um, and um, it was actually on the top of the charts the week before this one. And Basil never had another top 40 hit and actually only put out a handful of singles after this, but this is pretty memorable. And um, she's still around doing choreography too. So she's still yeah. around. In I've been in that very New Orleans. It's so. creepy. Yep. <laughs> Just to throw it. Yeah. To yeah. Something you mentioned at the beginning. <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine it would be. Yeah. But that's that's also the reason why nobody's allowed to film in that cemetery. Anymore. Yeah, there's still like bodies because they did that that's without creepy. permission. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but yep. Um, anyway, we're up to number one here. Here we go. Well, it's kind of appropriate um, that this is number one, as this is at the dawn of my own independence in terms of what in terms of what music I listen to. Everyone has their own quote unquote time where they get away from what their parents were listening to on the radio um, and start listening to your own music. And that period for me was this period. And Hall and Oates were the really the first group that I kind of latched on to. And they were definitely at the peak of their powers at this point. And I love them then and still do. And Looking back, I know I had heard of Hall & Oates songs before this, but this was probably my first exposure um, past the parental era, um, like hearing it with my own ears, so to speak. So as this was the first single off of H2O, which is the first album I ever owned. Um, and so it's odd that, you know, Maneater, though, isn't like my first go to these days when it comes to that era of Hall & Oates, even though it is a pretty cool song. I mean, Got a lot of 80s elements here. We got the 80s sax, which was played by Charles DeChant, who played on pretty much all the big early 80s Hall & Oates songs that featured saxophone, and um, which which means he kind of helped define the, the sound of the early 80s generally. Um, <clears throat> also, though, the bass by, uh, by the late T-Bone Walk in this song is pretty impressive. Bass in a lot of Hall & Oates songs is really good. And really the music in Hall & Oates songs doesn't get enough love um, as much as it should, because much of it is really excellent. And, uh, you know, as their band was tight and later on, um, they became famous as the Saturday Night Live house band. Um, the, the song itself is actually a metaphor for New York City. Yep. Those considerably song doctored by uh, Hall & Oates songwriting partner, Sarah Allen, a.k.a. Sarah Smile, um, to kick it up a notch. And she kind of gave it a hook to where people thought it was about a relationship, but it's actually about the ravages of New York city, according to John Oates anyway, or, uh, so the video also featured the kind <laughs> of stilted acting from Hall Oates and the band that, uh, their videos were sort of famous for at that point, just a lot of herky jerky movements and, you know, awkward close-ups and stuff like that. This video featured quite a bit of that. So pretty good song. Um, you know, fits right into the kind of role that they were on from about 1980 to, 85 or so so anyway that does it for this week i get to pick for next week okay what do you have for us all right we're gonna stick with the hot 100 again which is probably our longest run of consecutive hot but christmas slash year end chart that would have been memorable and the one that i 
thought of at first was from 1987, as we went on a trip to Florida mm-hmm. uh, during that Christmas break. Problem is, we just did a 1987 album chart not long ago, and there would be some repeat stuff from that, so I bagged that, and instead we're going to go with the last chart of the 60s, December 27th, 1969, Hot 100. December 27th, 1969, okay. Yeah, the last chart of the 60s. Okay, okay. We are exiting the 60s, and by the end of the 70s, we'll have flying cars, and we'll have computers that make food and shit. It'll be great. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. The the Vietnam War will be over by then. We won't just be on the moon. We'll be at frickin' uh, Jupiter by that point in 1979. (laughs) Right, yeah. So, and by then, Nixon isn't going to be president anymore. We'll have, um, you know, George McGovern will be in his second term by then. It's going to be a utopia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, that's what's up for next week, so... Uh, Matt, any last words? Um, no, not really. Um, I guess we'll see you again in 1969. Um, the last chart of the 60s. So that's right. Yeah, you go ahead. Think about how much you know the various um, you know butt fucking angles there are to, to to Mickey. You just keep thinking about that. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Where did Robert Criscow come up with that? that I mean. I have no idea. <laughs> I love his writing, but he did have some you know, kind of you know, random asides like that that didn't make a whole lot of sense. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So in, in Tony Bennett's defense, so right, yep. <laughs> I don't even like it, but I think that's a weird observation. It, it is. I mean, I I don't mind Mickey, but yeah, it is weird. <laughs> so. Okay, last word for me. Go check out the Chips, Laura Branigan episode. You won't be sorry. <laughs> okay, okay, I will. Yes. <laughs> All right. See you next week. <laughs>